The HMS Tartar, along with the other tribal class warships, were commissioned in March of 1939 to fight in the Second World War under the British Navy. The tribal class destroyers were well known for their anti-aircraft pom-pom guns, two of which you can see up front, and one like it in the back. The Tartar also carried torpedoes up front, which would be used to target other uh, surface targets, as opposed to anti-aircraft targets, meaning that these ships were quite versatile. Of the 16 tribal-class warships that were commissioned for the war, only four survived. The HMS Cirque was a round-table-class trawler, although it was not a traditional trawler. Like many trawlers of, during the World War II era in the 40s, it was converted to a minesweeper to serve in the British Navy. Working on minesweepers like the HMS Cirque was considered to be one, among the most dangerous jobs in the Royal Navy, and also one of the most boring. Working on the minesweepers consisted of long days of going across the ocean with other larger ships, and when they entered a minefield, the dynamic changed greatly. They led large ships through minefields and allowed for them to navigate safely, although the navigation was obviously not safe for the minesweepers, who would try to take out any mines that they found and go through them first to make sure that they were safe for the bigger ships that carry more people and were also more valuable. The HMS Kent is a Monmouth-class armored carrier. Ten of these were built to fight in World War I for the British Navy. These were called county-class ships, as they are named in English counties, this one being the HMS Kent, named after County Kent in southern England. The HMS Kent in particular played an important role in the Battle of the Falkland Islands, after ships were tra transporting through Cape Horn, as there was no Panama Canal at the time, leading for an armed intervention between the British and the German navies in the Falkland Islands. After the First World War, the Treaty of Versailles was signed. This greatly limited the capacity of the German Empire. It meant that Germany could no longer do much of what it used to do, especially in the realm of military. Part of the Treaty of Versailles limited the tonnage of German warships to that of 10,000 tons. Well, that sounds like impressively heavy. Remember that all warships are impressively heavy. 10,000 tons was awfully small. However, as Germany's Nazi regime was ramping up their power, they continually violated the Treaty of Versailles in many small ways. One of such violations that ramped up the tensions between Germany and the Allied forces was the development of the Graf Spree. These were small ships that had 40% of the tonnage, 40% more of the tonnage that they were allowed. While they were allowed only 10,000 tons, these things hit close to 15,000. These became a very fearsome enemy at the beginning of the war, especially in the Blitzkrieg period when the Allies were not expecting any sort of resistance from Germany or any armed conflict, and at most were trying to avoid it. Battleship New Jersey is very well known for its involvement in the Second World War, although it also seen action in the Korean conflict and in Vietnam. Battleship New Jersey is an Iowa-class battleship. It was most well known for its involvement in World War II during its time in the Caroline and Marshall Islands in modern-day Kiribati and the Marshall Islands. This heavily restricted the naval power of the Japanese. It was a coordinated assault that effectively brought about the end 
of Japanese area dominance of those island chains. The HMS Kingston is one of the eight K-class destroyers built by the Royal Navy in World War II. The HMS Kingston is well known for partaking in one of the first sinkings of a German U-boat in World War II. The Kingston and her other J, K, or N-class destroyers, whose names all started with J, K, or N, saw a lot of hard service, especially in the Mediterranean in the Second World War. The Kingston has a story of being damaged in battle, as many a ship throughout history have been. However, when the Kingston went to Malta for repairs and entered dry dock, she was bombed by the enemy and was deemed a lost to have been repaired. She's one of the six of the JK or N class destroyers that were destroyed in the Second World War. This wonder of engineering right here is the IJN I-400, typically shorter just the I-400. There were three of these made. They were incredible for their time. They were aircraft carrier submarines, and they were the largest submarines that ever existed until 1965. They could carry three aircraft, typically bombers, in their hangars that could be folded up, and they could actually submerge with them inside of the submarine. This made them a very big threat for the Allies. The Japanese had plans for these to sail across the Pacific Ocean and bomb key targets after they had attacked Pearl Harbor. They would attack Los Angeles, San Diego, Seattle, all sorts of American cities across the West Coast, and even had a plan to bomb the locks of the Panama Canal, causing Allied reinforcements coming from the European theater to have to add an additional six weeks to their journey to help in the Pacific front. This ship was a very formidable foe, although its one weakness was that it was incredibly slow. Towards the end of the war, the Japanese had a plan to bomb an American-occupied atoll in the Pacific, just south of the Okinawa Islands. The ship was so slow that it couldn't get there before the Japanese had surrendered, and only was there about three quarters of the way until, they, until the orders to surrender were called. Anyone who grew up in the Cold War will be able to tell you about the constant nuclear drills in case the Russians ever did decide to nuke an American city. The constant paranoia that surrounded everybody at that time is best encapsulated in the Soviet Alpha-class submarines. These were nuclear-powered submarines that were most expensive in the world at the time, being made entirely out of titanium. They were powered by nuclear reactors, but that had its own downsides. It meant that they had a very short lifespan and had to be kept warm when not in use. This meant that they were mostly kept in port, although they were always ready to be used as interceptors, and they were kept on readiness to be sent to the North Atlantic coast and be used if necessary. Of course, the United States wasn't the only country scared in the Cold War. In fact, it was not just the United States, but including the main rival, the Soviet Union. And perhaps no submarine quite shows that fear, quite like the USS Nevada. The USS Nevada is designed to go in deep ocean areas and to be able to be stealthy while carrying 24 nuclear trident ballistic missiles, with each of them having multiple nuclear warheads. These submarines are a crucial part of the United States nuclear deterrence program and are still in operation today despite their long service time extending to 35 years right now. The F.V. Penny Hope is a name that will ring bells in the minds of some of the older folks that come through the gallery to this day. 
The Penny Hope was originally built at the Marystown Shipyard for John Penny and Sons, based out of Ramia, Newfoundland, just off the south coast of the island, on its own smaller island. However, the Penny Hope isn't best known for her career, but rather, while she was building built in the shipyard, she had a bit of an incident. While she was at the sinker lift, she nearly went lopsided entirely and nearly destroyed the entire dock, and the sinker lift for that matter too. With the ship of 500 tons like the Penny Hope, you couldn't just pull her up with something like a tow truck. They were lucky enough that, not too long after, she managed to bob back up. Thankfully, as if she had not, you could have said goodbye to the sinker lift, the dock, and the, all the infrastructure at the shipyard, which she crashed into. The USS Seedville was a sturgeon-class nuclear attack submarine. They were commissioned in the late 1960s and were commonly seen as the workhorses of the Navy's submarine fleet during the Cold War. They were able to carry many different types of torpedoes, missiles, and mines. They were commonly modified to carry different sorts of underwater vehicles. These were oftentimes used for covert deployments of the U.S. Navy SEALs for operations during the Cold War. For the grandparents of the Buren Peninsula, one name remains ingrained in their mind, none like that of the Lady Anderson. The MV Lady Anderson was the last hospital ship to ever serve in the province of Newfoundland Labrador. Although during its, most of its service, Newfoundland had not even joined Canada. It was created in 1935 as a hospital ship after the commission of government from Britain came in. The ship served across the south coast, serving communities all the way from port basque to Placentia Bay Islands, like Odarin, Marachine, and places including Marystown, Buren, Shalloway, and more. People could get va- inoculated for tuberculosis, vaccinated, and have minor medical procedures done on board the Lady Anderson. The artifacts we see here are all from the MV Lady Anderson. This uniform belonged to Captain Edmund Fitzpatrick, the last captain of the Newfoundland hospital ship, the MV Lady Anderson. The magnifying glass, binoculars, the captain's log, the charts, and the deck plank are all from the MV Lady Anderson. If there was any ship that was more important to the local people that we have in this gallery, it would most certainly be the MV Lady Anderson. The EJ Seraphic is a powerful west coast dragger used on the shores of British Columbia to haul up whatever lays in the bottom of the ocean, namely scallops. In fact, the ship is so powerful, the net itself has tires on the bottom meant to help the net move across the bottom of the ocean. The captain also has access to a sonar meant to help the captain see where the net is on the bottom of the ocean. The USS Los Angeles was originally commissioned by the United States Navy during the height of the Cold War in 1976. The USS Los Angeles was particularly renowned as a leader of its class, as they were independent hunter-killers, taking after the original idea of U-boats from the Germans in World War I. They would travel alone or in small flotillas, typically the former. The USS Los Angeles was armed with four tubes that typically served missiles or torpedoes that were used to sink any enemy ship that came into sight. 
They also occasionally carried U.S. Navy SEAL teams for covert intelligence operations. The USS Sea Fox was commissioned by the United States Navy to fight in the Pacific front of World War II. The USS Sea Fox was designed to be bigger than other submarines, including the German U-boats at the time. They also had a larger capacity of torpedo tubes. This meant they also carried more torpedoes than other ships. This gave them a distinct advantage of being able to attack multiple targets before having to return to a naval base. They also were larger. However, one disadvantage to the ships was the fact that they were built so late into the war in 1944. This meant that after the war, the United States heavily upgraded these ships, including giving them a higher bat battery capacity as well as other upgrades that made them more viable going into the Cold War. The CC-1 is a somewhat important submarine to the history of Canada, as it was our first ever submarine. However, it was not made by Canadians. Instead, it was made by the Americans. But the Americans had no intention to sell it to Canada. They intended to sell it to the Chileans in South America. However, they did not, the submarine did not meet the standards that they had set out in their contract, and thus they refused to accept CC-1 as a submarine. It wasn't long until the Premier of British Columbia came along and decided that he would buy the ship on behalf of the Canadian government. CC-1 was later folded into the Canadian Navy after World War I had broke out and served four years in the Canadian Navy and was scrapped after World War I for parts. The CSS Hunley serves as an important chapter in naval history, as was the first submarine to ever sink an enemy ship in battle. The CSS Hunley sunk the USS Housatonic during the American Civil War in 1863. However, the Hunley was not the first ship to sink itself. In fact, it sunk itself three times in its entire lifespan. The last time being after it sunk the USS Housatonic. The CSS Hunley used a device of 135 pounds of black powder on top of a spar on front of the ship that used to ram enemy ships. This only ever worked on the USS Housatonic, and when the ship exploded, the shockwave came back and killed everybody on board of the Hunley. The MV Bellina was a whaling ship built in Belfast in 1946. However, the ship was not made with the intent to hunt whales. It was made with the intent to process them. The MV Bellina would take whales caught from hunting ships and would process them. The blubber would be melted down into a liquid and stored in barrels, while the meat would be processed below a deck. The crew would live in the stern, as were the engine rooms and the hospital of the ship. The MV Setter was a whaling ship built in 1943. The MV Setter was designed to be able to use diesel power in order to catch up to whales at a higher speed. This meant that whalers were no longer bound by the speed of the great whales that they were fighting, and they had a great advantage over the whales, greater than they had before. This caused a drastic reduction in the world population of whales, and nearly drove them to extinction. In the 1960s, this meant that the world had to come together and put an end to whaling. And nowadays, commercial whaling is virtually non-existent. The SS Knight of St. Patrick was an ocean-going tug that used steam engines to move itself across the waves. The SS Knight of St. Patrick was fairly unique as it was designed to be a sea salvage tug to rescue ships in great danger on the ocean, typically ones that have been sinking, and bring them in. T-34 
Teams of stokers fed their furnaces with shovels full of coal, going through tons of coal a day, in a day. The work was hot and dangerous, especially during the rough weather. The USS Ohio is an Ohio-class nuclear ballistic missile submarine. It was commissioned in 1981 as a new design of nuclear ballistic missile submarine. The USS Ohio's new design allowed it to carry more nuclear trident missiles while patrolling the deep depths of the oceans of the world while being virtually undetected. This made it to be a stealth killer that could surface in the most dire circumstances and blow up entire cities with its nuclear arsenal. Because of this, Ohio-class submarines like the USS Ohio are considered to be one leg of the U.S. nuclear trident, with the others being the U.S. Air Force bombers and land-based rockets. The SS Kenora was a railcar ferry ship that served between Port Mann and Nyamo in British Columbia. It was first launched in September of 1918 and served all the way up until 1965 for a whopping 57 years in service. The ship had a propeller and a rudder at the transom of the ship in the back and had another set of propellers and rudder at the front of the ship or the bow. This meant the ship could come in and out of dock a lot faster and spent her life carrying coal cars between the two cities in British Columbia. If any of you are familiar with freighter ships, you know they're capable of carrying thousands of cargo crates. They'll take them across the world through either the Suez or Panama Canal to, to bring everything we have to where it's needed. However, they could not always carry thousands of crates. Before then, we had ships like the MV Bannerman that could carry a mere 16, if not a few more. These ships were how cargo was typically translated by the waves before the dominance of such cargo ships. The MV Bannerman specifically was one of the last classes of ships to actually sail the ocean, and it was able to keep a, barely afloat by the thought of it being faster than other ships, which it was. However, it was much cheaper in order to send things by those larger ships, and by proxy they became the dominant force. And for fast things that need to go fast in the mail, they would use airplanes. So the MV Behrman's market had all but dried up, and ships like it no longer exist. The U-331 and German U-boats like it were the most common type of submarine used by the Germans in World War II. The U-331 and submarines like it were fairly small. However, they managed to have a good balance of speed, firepower, and toughness. Submarines like the U-331 were very formidable at the beginning of the war, as they were commissioned in March of 1941, not far off from the start of the war. However, as the Allies had advancements in the realm of technology and submarines, the U-331 and submarines of its class began to suffer. Of the 1,162 su submarines the Germans had for World War II, 785 were destroyed and the remainder surrendered. The U-331 in particular is famous because it sunk the Royal Navy battleship, the HMS Barham. The German U-boats, more specifically the German Type 9 U-boats used during World War II from 1938 to 1945, were significantly larger than other German U-boats. They also had a greater capacity for torpedoes 
and could hold more and be ready to fire more than others as well. The Titan U-boats typically patrolled the eastern seaboard of North America, including one incident in Whitless Bay on the east coast of the Avalon Peninsula. The submarine was taken to St. John's Harbor and then to Halifax, where it was scuttled on top of a ship that had sank. Another Type 9 U-boat still remains in Chicago to this day. A history of submarines would be incomplete without a mention of the German U-boats that served in World War I. These were fierce, independent submarines that would hunt anything they seen and sink any ship they could within sight. They were fierce and scared the living daylights out of anything that saw them. If you seen one on a civilian ship, you were just as well dead. These U-boats would sink anything that came into their sight lines that they could feasibly sink without risking their own lives. In fact, many of these were actually seen in Newfoundland across all sorts of fronts. And they were uniquely advantaged as opposed to how they were deployed. Allies like Britain deployed them in flotillas along with other warships, as opposed to the German style of independent submarines sinking ships randomly, which was far more effective. The engineering was also a marvel, and even after the war, the Americans and other allies based their future submarine designs off of the German U-boats they had captured. The USS Seawolf was commissioned in July of 1997 to fill the role of the old Los Angeles-class submarines that I mentioned earlier. Just like their predecessors, they were designed to be independent hunter-killers that could take down anything that they found. They also were able to quietly sail into enemy waters and transport SEAL teams and other special units. The Seawolf also has new advantages, such as a new, new technology able to break Arctic sea ice, allowing for the U.S. Seawolf to travel much further north than its predecessors. It also has more torpedo tubes, in fact, double the amount of its predecessors at a whopping eight compared to the predecessors four. The U.S. Seawolf, just like its predecessor, was also very hard to detect, perhaps even more so than the old Los Angeles-class submarines. The USS Queenfish was commissioned along with the other Ballo-class submarines in March of 1944, towards the end of World War II. Only 120 of these were completed, and they were designed to be improvements to the earlier Gatto-class. They had a thicker hull and a deeper operating depth. The USS Queenfish and the other Ballo-class submarines were considerably larger than the other German U-boats. They had more torpedo tubes and reloads, the USS Queenfish, in particular, was credited with sinking eight Japanese ships over the course of four patrols from August of 1944 to April of 1945, including one of the infamous Japanese aircraft carriers. The Type 33 submarines were Chinese diesel attack submarines that had their construction started in 1962. The origins of the Type 33 submarine are not even from China, really. They're rather from the USSR. The USSR, in a mutual aid program, gave China 
the plans and the parts for the Type 33 submarines. However, as the Cold War progressed and the Chinese and the Sino-Soviet split grew bigger, this stopped and the Chinese had to develop their own parts, which slowed their production considerably. Although I've said was previously, some of these are actually still in service as training units in China. The C-SPAN Regent is an ocean-going tug built in 1976 at Belair Shipyards. The C-SPAN Regent uses powerful diesel engines to tow disabled vessels to port, as well as large floating structures like oil rigs. The C-SPAN Regent is also capable of pulling multiple barges at once, and they have the power to do this both locally within Canada, as well as overseas, internationally. The C-SPAN Monarch, built in 1977, is a tugboat capable of delivering ships of the largest tows in extended periods of time. It was also equipped with a boom capable of lifting cars and other supplies onto the deck to be transported to remote locations in British Columbia. The MV Charles Cates was built in 1977. It's a tugboat that was built in northern Vancouver in British Columbia. The Charles Cates was used to provide shipbirthing and provisioning, and this and other tugs would allow for large ships to go into berth. They also carried fuel, food, and other provisions. The Cates had twin diesel engines for increased maneuverability, and believe it or not, the MV Charles Cates was still in service as of 2020. It is often said to predict the future, we must first look to science fiction, and none quite proves that point right like Jules Verne in his book, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. In the book, men on crews of ships set out to try and kill a vicious sea monster, sinking every ship to cross the ocean. However, when the ship finds the monster, they realize the monster is not a monster in its true self, it is, in fact, a submarine. The submarine sinks the ship, and the crew is mostly drowned. However, many, much of the crew is kept aboard the Nautilus, the name of the submarine, sinking all these ships. At that time, the idea of a submarine crossing an ocean had never been thought of feasible. The only submarine to ever really work in any capacity was the CSS Hunley at that time which was propelled by hand motions and could go just off the shores of certain areas. The Nautilus went through entire canals, through the seas of the world and the oceans, and became ingrained into the minds of pop culture for decades and centuries to come. The SS Inuit was a river-going tug in northern Canada, crossing the mighty Yukon River, which stretches all the way from the Bering Sea of Alaska through Yukon to northern BC. Despite her small size, she had a team of men steadily employed in shoveling coal into fireboxes, which helped generate the steam power used to move this small tugboat. The SS Master is an all-wooden steam tugboat that was built in southwestern British Columbia in the early 1920s. As was common 
and the very much the normal at the time. The SS Master used steam power. This type of engine used steam from the boiler to power the first cylinder. This exhaust steam was then passed to the next cylinder to power it, and was, in turn, passed to the third cylinder. This let the most energy to be captured from the generated steam. The Chieftain is another steam-powered tugboat that was first launched in 1899. Unlike the other steam-powered tugs we have here, or at least most of them, the Chieftain also uses paddles in order to move itself across the waves. The Chieftain uses coal-powered boilers that supply our engines with steam and had teams of stokers that would shovel coal into furnaces. The Chieftain was a versatile ship and towed many ships, barges, and even log booms over the years. The Chieftain operated until 1930. The Tug Elf is the oldest steam-powered tug that we have in our collection. It was built in 1875, and as was common at the time, it used steam power. This was accomplished by having teams of stokers shovel coal into fireboxes that kept the ship moving. The Tug Elf in particular specialized in navigating narrow channels and helping other ships navigate narrow channels. Side wheelers and stern wheelers were the bridge between sail power and the widespread use of modern screw propeller. However, this improvement also seen a drastic quality of life improvement for those working on ships like this, as no longer did they have the dangerous job of being stokers. Relevant to the history of Newfoundland and Labrador is the oil industry. And none quite shows that industry, like the Satra 23. Ships like these sail out to oil rigs and supply them with everything they need. From drilling equipment to supplies to munitions for the crew and the people serving on the oil rigs to drill pipe machinery and replacement parts. These ships can store almost 700 tons of equipment and munition for the crew with a tonnage of 694 tons. The Sector 23 in specific is currently in service in Brazil, despite being built over 40 years ago. What you're looking at here is the USS Enterprise, the American Enterprise-class nuclear aircraft carrier. The USS Enterprise was the first aircraft carrier in the world to be hired by nuclear and used eight different nuclear reactors in order to provide her with her power. The ship was remarkably expensive and had many other ships, i.e. aircraft, serving on, on her. And as a result of those eight nuclear reactors, she was able to move incredibly fast for a ship of her size. And she was only retired recently, in February 2017, after 56 years of service. After her retirement, the U.S. Navy considered making the USS Enterprise into a museum ship and as a testament to how it costly it was, the cost of turning it into a museum ship was estimated to be around $20 billion. And thus, she was scrapped, and the plans for the museum ship were also scrapped. HMS Lyon was a British battle cruiser that was commissioned in 1912 and fought through the First World War. She's uh, quite well known for being the flagship of Admiral Beatty, the head of the battlecruiser force. 
during the Battle of Jutland in 1916. Jutland was the biggest battleship battle in history. Lyon very nearly shared the fate of two other British battle cruisers that day. She very nearly blew up, as did her sister ship. The only thing that saved Lyon from destruction was the bravery of Major Harvey, the officer in command of Q turret, the, the middle turret of the ship. When a German shell hit the turret, it killed pretty much everybody in the turret and mortally wounded Major Harvey. He still managed to crawl across the turret, pull himself up the voice pipes, and pass the order to flood the magazines, basically to open the big seawater valves below the waterline and let seawater flood in and soak the powder, rendering it harmless. A few minutes later, the charges smoldering in the elevator system flashed over and caught fire, but the ship didn't explode because the powder had been rendered harmless. Major Harvey saved 1,200 men that day and his ship and was awarded the Victoria Cross posthumously. HMS Hood was, at one point in the world, the world's largest warship, and it stayed that way for 20 years. She was one of uh, the proposed class of Admiral-class battlecruisers built for the Royal Navy, but after World War I ended, the rest of the class was canceled. So Hood was a standalone ship, the only one like her. She was very fast at 31 and a half knots. She carried eight 15-inch guns, and she was actually quite a lovely ship. She was normally a flagship. She usually carried an admiral and did a lot of diplomatic trips. She did the Empire Cruise, which went from Britain to South Africa, India, Ceylon, to Australia, New Zealand, Vancouver, and then worked its way around up the Americas and uh, actually finished in St. John's, Newfoundland before going home. The problem was because of all the diplomatic trips throughout the 1920s and 30s, she was so valuable for that purpose that some of her proposed refits and upgrades were delayed and delayed and then war broke out in 1939 and she still wasn't upgraded. Her, fam her, her most famous voyage was in May of 1941. The German battleship Bismarck escaped from the Baltic and was trying to get into the North Atlantic to attack the convoys going back and forth between North America and Great Britain. Hood was sent to stop her. Now, the two of them met and fought in the Denmark Strait, the stretch of water between Iceland and Greenland. Uh, unfortunately, Bismarck scored a hit on Hood aft toward her, uh, her X magazine. The German shell went in, detonated Hood's own ammunition. 110 tons of explosive went up, and Hood was blown in half. The rear rolled over and sank. The front half of the ship stood on end and slid backward into the North Atlantic, and they were only able to save three men out of 1,418. Our model of HMS Hood is really quite large. It's 164th scale, which means that one inch on the actual model represents 64 inches on the real ship. Hood herself was 860 feet long, so our model translates to 13 feet, 5 inches. Uh, she's also quite heavy. Now, the construction, it's relatively straightforward. You've got a wooden keel, plywood bulkheads across to give her the shape. Then she'd be planked over and then fiberglass on top, to which the final shape was molded into. 
Uh, quite a bit of pewter, silver, and brass was used in reconstruction, which makes for a lot of clean, sharp detail, but it also adds weight. The hood herself, combined with the large wooden oak base she's on, uh, totals around 1,100 pounds. So she was quite a heavy beastie to move and put into position. In May of 1941, the German battleship Bismarck left the Baltic and her mission was to proceed through one of the gaps between the islands of uh, the Faroes, the Shetlands, Iceland, Greenland, through one of those gaps, enter the North Atlantic and attack the convoys traveling from America to Great Britain. The 24th of May, she was proceeding in company with the German heavy cruiser Prinz Eugen through what was called the Denmark Strait, the piece of water between Iceland and Greenland. Early in that morning, she encountered two British ships, HMS Hood and HMS Prince of Wales. They opened fire, Bismarck returned fire, and within the first few minutes, one of Bismarck's shells struck the Hood aft near X turret. The shell went in, detonated Hood's magazine, and Hood's own ammunition destroyed her. 110 tons of explosives went up the one time, and the center of the ship basically evaporated. She snapped in half, the stern rolled over and sank. The front half of the ship stood on end and slid backward into the North Atlantic, and there were only three survivors from 1,400 men. Now, Bismarck herself was damaged in the battle, and after the German heavy cruiser broke away and returned home, Bismarck, instead of attacking the convoy, she turned for France and was running for France at 28 knots to enter dry dock and get repaired. Two British battleships... King George V and Rodney were in pursuit, but couldn't catch up. In desperation, the British launched several airstrikes using the old-fashioned biplane torpedo bombers, the swordfish. They found Bismarck, and the first two hits struck her in the side, started a few small leaks, broke some machinery, but didn't do any great damage to her. The third hit was very different. A third torpedo hit her right above the rudder posts, destroyed the rudders, and uh, instead of running for France at 28 knots, she was just able to wallow into the wind at 7 or 8 and wait till the morning when the two British battleships came up and over the course of a couple of hours destroyed Bismarck with hundreds of shell hits. She was heavily aflame, rolled over and sank. I believe there were only 300 survivors and 1,900 men went down with her. After the Bismarck fled the scene of the Denmark Strait, after she had sunk the HMS Hood, the flagship of the British fleet, the British Navy was out for revenge against the Bismarck, and the German Navy at large. After launching many different torpedo planes to try and sink the Bismarck, one of them managed to land a lucky shot on the rudder of the Bismarck, reducing her speed from 30 knots to 16. A critical error for a ship that is known for her fast pace. This lucky shot by the plane which you can see here was a thing that single-handedly allowed for the other British ships accompanying the, that launched those planes, such as the HMS King George V and the HMS Prince of Wales, to sink the Bismarck. Here in the gallery, we have a letter from one of the three survivors of Hood, a Mr. Ted Briggs. It was written in the year 2000 <clears throat> to the model maker, Mr. Uh, Rodney Henryson. It says, Dear Rod, 
Thank you for taking the trouble to send me a copy of the photograph of your model of HMS Hood, which I found fascinating. The amount of patience required for 18 years' work is almost beyond belief and a great tribute to your craftsmanship. I shall have great pleasure in showing this to our members. With very best wishes and thanks, yours sincerely, Ted Briggs. This ship is HMS King George V. She was a name class of her ship, a British battleship, that was built in the 1930s. Now, these designs were a compromise because of the Washington Treaty, a naval treaty designed to limit uh, naval expansion and reduce the chances of a Second World War. Regrettably, it wasn't terribly successful. It did restrain the design. Uh, for a better ship, King George V could have been a little larger, and instead of having 10 14-inch guns, could have been fitted with nine 15-inch which would have simplified matters. As it was, she was a good, solid, dependable ship. Her main claim to fame occurred in 1941 when she and another battleship, Rodney, participated in sinking the Bismarck. Bismarck had been crippled by a uh, swordfish torpedo bomber that wrecked her rudders, which allowed King George V and Rodney to come up and smother Bismarck with hundreds of shell hits. She rolled over and sank, and they went back to base. In later years, King George V served in a wide variety of roles. She escorted some convoys to North Russia, and then after the war in Europe concluded, proceeded to the Pacific, where she fought with the British Eastern Fleet against the Japanese. She was present in Tokyo Bay when Japan finally surrendered in 1945. HMS Queen Elizabeth a British battleship. She was, at the time of her launching, the most powerful battleship in the world, lead, the lead ship of her class. The first one to feature the 15-inch gun, which is widely regarded as one of the best pieces of heavy ordnance ever built. Queen Elizabeth herself served in both the First and Second World Wars and went to the scrappers in the 1940s. All of this in spite of being actually sunk once. In 1941, Italian frogmen came into Alexandria Harbor, planted charges underneath her belly, and blew a 30 by 30 foot hole underneath her boiler rooms. Her boiler rooms flooded and she sank to the bottom of the harbor, but luckily Alexandria is quite shallow. She only sank about 18 feet, so the British were able to pump her full of air and raise her to the surface and took her away to be repaired, and she served out the rest of the war in the battle line. The Italian frogmen who sank her actually received their medals for sinking the ship while standing on her deck when she came back to the Mediterranean because Italy had surrendered in the meantime and was now an ally of Great Britain. Indeed, the captain of the ship was the one who pinned the medals on the men who sank his own ship. The USS Missouri was one of the four Iowa-class battleships built for America. They were an excellent design of ship. They were very fast, very powerful, and packed a lot of punch. By the time she was in commission, which would have been in the middle of 1944, practically all the heavy Japanese ships had already been sunk or were trapped in harbor from lack of fuel. Thankfully, though, uh, the Iowas, Missouri included, still proved to be very successful because with their high rate of speed, 33 knots, they were able to keep up 
with the aircraft carriers, and so we're able to provide heavy anti-aircraft cover for them. With the large number of anti-aircraft guns these ships possessed, they could put a wall of flak above the carriers and were instrumental in keeping them safe. Missouri's main claim to fame came in 1945, in August. She was in Tokyo Bay, along with the rest of the American fleet and the British fleet, when the Japanese delegation came aboard and signed the surrender documents on her deck. Missouri is preserved now as a museum ship at Pearl Harbor, anchored only a short distance behind the USS Arizona, who was destroyed in the initial 1941 attack on Pearl Harbor. The HMS M15 is a M15 class monitor. 14 ships like it were built and three were destroyed in World War I, the war that they fought in. The HMS M15s were known to be just enough gun to fit on the ship. The idea of the ships was that the HMS M15 could fire at enemies on land as opposed to different targets on the water. They would get word from allies on land and use the information given to choose targets to shoot at from the water. This provided a distinct advantage to the allies. The HMS M15 herself was sunk in Gaza after the war in 1917. The HMCS Dauphine was a class corvette ship. These were used by the Canadian Navy in World War II. These flower-class ships were primarily used as escorts for merchant ships in the Second World War. The Dauphine herself is named for the town of Dauphine in Manitoba. These ships were small, slow, and uncomfortable, but they provided invaluable service, especially in the early war. One ship like this still exists in Halifax, Nova Scotia, the HMCS Sackville. RFA stands for Royal Fleet Auxiliary, aka the Merchant Marines. The Royal Fleet Auxiliary, or the Merchant Marines as they're more commonly known, function as a way for the war effort to continue to be supplied, and supply ships like the RFA Blue Rover keep those supply lines running. They bring goods needed for war, the war effort all across the world. The RFA Blue Rover and its sister ships were made in July of 1970. This came at a crucial time, as not too long after they were commissioned, the Falklands War broke out when Argentina invaded the Falkland Islands. This meant that Britain had to create large supply lines stretching from Britain to St. Helena to the Falkland Islands. So the Royal Fleet Auxiliary came very much in handy. If any of you thought that the turnaround was hard on the Newfoundlanders, you've obviously never heard of the Pomor. The Pomor are an indigenous group in northwest Russia in Murmansk Oblast. The Pomor are famous for their annual voyages north, or at least historically. Traditionally, the Pomor would sail up every year to the high Arctic to places as far as Spitsbergen, Nova Zemlya, Franz Josef Land, and other areas within the Arctic Circle. They would sail in boats similar to this catch 
and break through the ice and hunt whatever they could find. They would bring it back later that year, or the next year, to feed to their families or to sell whatever they could. One of the common questions about the palm horse catch is how it was able to break the ice. This is a result of its round hull. And if you look at other ships at the time, many of them did not have such round holes, which allowed it to have greater maneuverability in the ice. That's not to say that this job was easy, though, as you had very few men on board this ship. And if anything went awry, you didn't have any backup vessels to be on either. The HMS Bounty was originally built in 1784 as a merchant ship. However, it wouldn't be very long until she was taken into service in the Royal Navy. The HMS Bounty is famous worldwide for her one mission in her lifetime, which was to sail across the world and get breadfruits to allow for slavers to grow food to feed to their slaves in the British West Indies. While this mission doesn't sound important, What's famous was how bad it was. The captain, or really Lieutenant Captain William Bly, was known to be a tyrant and governed his men with fierce authority, and practices such as flogging were not uncommon. Combined with the tyrant, as well as the bad weather around the areas they were sailing, including Cape Horn and the Cape of Good Hope, as well as the bad food and the less than desirable water they had on board. This led for the crew to be fed up by the time they reached their destination of Tahiti in the Pacific Ocean. Upon reaching their destination, when the crew set sail again from Tahiti, they launched a mutiny led by Fletcher Christian. The loyal crewmen, as well as Captain Bly himself, were set aside in the small dinghy you see in the center of the boat. Remarkably, all but one of the men managed to survive and make it to the island of Kupang in then the Den Dutch, the Den Dutch Timor. The remaining mutineers were on Tahiti, where, the, where they were later apprehended by the HMS Pandora and brought back to Britain for trial. However, most of them died when the ship crashed into the Great Barrier Reef on the way back. However, many of the mutineers, including Fletcher Christian himself, later set sail on the HMS Bounty yet again to go to the island of Pitcairn, where they kidnapped 20 people from Tahiti, mostly women, to take with them. In 1808, the British finally discovered where the remaining mutineers had been hiding. However, by that time, only one of the mutineers had been surviving, and the British punished him promptly with exile to none other than Pitcairn Island. To this day, the descendants of the mutineers on Pitcairn Island celebrate Bounty Day, where they burn a replica of the HMS Bounty on January 23rd every year. This one needs no explanation whatsoever. It's the SV Blue Nose, the fastest sailing ship to ever be built, or at least until the 1960s. Though she may very well hold up today, as the skills needed to race on sailboats like these have since died down. Over the years, she had faced many different challengers. The Gertrude and the Columbia, most famously, which you can see right behind you, as they are the two biggest schooners that we have in our collection. After her racing career, 
she began a trade, a career in the coasting trade in 1942, in which she was wrecked in 1948. The Real de France is a type of ship known as a galley. These types of ships are propelled mainly by rowing, this one being exclusively, with a power of 360 men pushing 60 oars in order to move the ship along. The Real de France was incredibly fast. However, it did suffer in the fact that it could be swamped easily if it went out under open waters. As a result, the Real de France mainly went along sheltered areas such as coves or bays. In East Asian history, one occurrence is more common than any other, and that occurrence would be the Japanese invading Korea. However, in 1592, on one such occasion, the Koreans decided to try and stop the Japanese. Part of this effort was the Korean turtle ship. These ships had one notable design feature, which were the iron spikes that donned the top of the boat, meaning that anyone who tried to land on the ship via rope would, made, would meet an untimely demise on top of the ship. The SV Cuddy Sark was known to be the fastest tea clipper in the world. The Cuddy Sark was unique for its iron frame. This gave it the advantage of being able to take many more sails than the average ship, which you can quite clearly see on the model. The Cuddy, the Cuddy Sark and other tea clippers would take the small cargo, but needless to say, very expensive cargo of tea from China back to the United Kingdom. This iron frame allowed it to sail across harsh waters of the Cape Horn in due time. She's so strong that there's actually a Scottish rum named after her. The SV Cuddy Stark is also quite iconic, and for that status it has been preserved as a museum ship that you can see in London, England to this day. The USS Constitution was launched in October of 1797 meaning that it was right around the American Revolutionary War. The USS Constitution carried 44 cannons, although that's not what it's most well known for. It was nicknamed Iron, Old Ironsides for its 20 feet oak wood sidings. This meant that when an enemy cannonball hit the ship, it would simply bounce right off. Or at least, that's what the rumor said about the ship. Due to its iconic status, and the name probably had an influence on that as well, the ship is still preserved as a museum ship in Boston Harbor in Massachusetts. The HMS Nonsuch, meaning Nonsuch or basically unequaled, was a small 12 meter long catch that sailed across the North Atlantic into the Hudson's Bay. Well, that sounds ins insignificant. The HMS Nonsuch was no small ship in terms of historical significance at least. The Nonsuch, for its mission, managed to bring back a whopping 1,300 pounds from its trip worth in furs. While that does not sound very impressive, back then the average farmer made 20 pounds in a year. So 1,300 pounds for a ship that was merely 12 meters long was quite worthwhile. This small venture led to the creation of the Hudson's Bay Company, which is still around today as a small retail company although it's no longer near the force it once was. You can see an exact replica of the HMS Nonsuch in the Manitoba Museum in Winnipeg.
Before the Germany we know today existed, there are many collection of city-states. One of those cities was the city-state of Hamburg. While Hamburg is still a city today, it used to be its own semi-independent city-state. Hamburg, even to this day, is still a very dominant port in Germany and Europe at large. However, without a central authority, they struggled with the problem of piracy. So the city of Hamburg commissioned the ship Weapen von Hamburg, or simply the Wappen, to combat pirates and escort merchant ships coming out of the port of Hamburg. The ship was built in a whopping two years and escorted ships as far as Spain to Spitsberg and Norway in the high Arctic. And it's actually the place that that Palmer ship from back in the gallery sailed to. The ship was built in a whopping two years, which sounds awfully long until you realize the model itself took five years. The model itself has an incredible amount of detail put into it. You can see from the rigging, and if you go to the back of the ship, you can even see inside of the ship itself. Needless to say, the person who made this had a wonderful admiration for attention to detail. This display is of many different locally done boats and schooners. Typically, these are an arrangement that we have loaned out from people here in Marystown or other parts of the Bjorn Peninsula, or even all across the island of Newfoundland. As of the time I'm recording this, we have the Blue Nose, the Columbia, and the Gertrude Althebo. These were all racing ships, famous for their role in either being the fastest sailing ship in the world, in the case of the Blue Nose, or ships competing against the Blue Nose, in the case of the Columbia and the Gertrude. The other two we currently have on display are banking schooners, used as part of the Newfoundland fishing industry. These schooners would sail to the great the Grand Banks of Newfoundland and sit at their crews and small dories, where they would catch as many fish as they could and come back to the schooner at the end of the day. After coming back to the schooner with their load, they would then sail back on the schooner to Newfoundland or wherever their home country may be and set the kaida to dry to then sell to merchants.